The nation of Israel had disobeyed God consistently and grossly, and so God condemned them to exile. And so they were conquered by the Babylonians and taken into exile. Once in exile, God raised up prophets. One of those prophets named Ezekiel prophesied from exile. And in one of the most vivid scenes that a prophet has ever written down and experienced himself, Ezekiel tells of a time when he was carried by the Spirit in a vision to a valley. And in that valley, the floor of the valley was covered with dry bones, the bones of human beings. It was clearly a valley where a great battle had taken place in the past, quite possibly a battle where Israelites had lost their lives in great numbers. At this point in time, the valley had bones in it that were dry. It had been years, the flesh had decomposed, and all that was left were these bones. God tells Ezekiel to prophesy over the bones. He says, O dry bones, hear the word of the Lord. Thus says the Lord God to these bones, Behold, I will cause breath or spirit to enter you, and you shall live, and I will lay sinews upon you, and you will cause flesh to come upon you, and cover you with skin, and put breath in you, and you shall live and you shall know that I am the Lord. And so Ezekiel prophesies over these dry bones, and all of a sudden the bones begin to rattle and to move. And soon all of these vast number of dry bones begin to come together, and there are sinews and ligaments and muscles that begin to to form on the bones, and eventually flesh. And what is raised up in front of Ezekiel is the army, the army that these bones once represented, a living army with breath in it. The Lord says, Behold, I will open your graves and raise you from your graves, O my people. And I will bring you into the land of Israel, and you shall know that I am the Lord when I open your graves and raise you from your graves, O my people. And I will put my spirit within you, and you shall live, and I will place you in your own land, and then you will know that I am the Lord. I have spoken, and I will do it, declares the Lord. It's an incredible vision of dead people coming to life by the power of the Spirit. What I want you to see in this last third sermon on the Trinity is that the Holy Spirit is fully God, that He lives in you if you've repented and trusted in Christ, and that His work of sustaining and preserving us and giving us unity in Christ is crucial to our salvation and our eventual glorification. 
Today we're finishing our three-week series on the doctrine of the Trinity, and we're going to consider the Holy Spirit. But before we plunge into the sermon, I want us one third time, one more time, to say the Nicene Creed together. Please stand with me and turn in your bulletins to page 8. This was a creed, which is a brief summary of essential Christian truths that we believe, written in 381 A.D. Let's say this together loudly. We believe in one God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and of all things visible and invisible. And we believe in one Lord Jesus Christ, the only begotten Son of God, begotten from the Father before all time, light from light, true God from true God, begotten, not made, of the same essence as the Father, through whom all things were made, who for us and for our salvation came down from heaven and was incarnate by the Holy Spirit and the Virgin Mary and was made a man." He was crucified for us under Pontius Pilate and suffered and was buried and rose on the third day, according to the Scriptures. He ascended to heaven and sits at the right hand of the Father. He shall come again with glory to judge the living and the dead. His kingdom shall have no end. And we believe in the Holy Spirit, the Lord and giver of life who proceeds from the Father and the Son, who is worshipped and glorified together with the Father and Son, and who spoke through the prophets. And we believe that there is one holy, universal, and apostolic church. We confess one baptism for the remission of sins, and we look for the resurrection of the dead and the life of the world to come. Amen. Please be seated. Let me begin by giving you a little bit of an outline for where I'm going in this sermon. First, we're going to review what we've learned about the Trinity, and I'm going to add a few additional truths about the Trinity for you to take in and add to your understanding. Second, then, we're going to turn to the person of the Trinity, and we're going to sketch out a brief survey of where we see the Holy Spirit in the Scripture And what the Scripture says, perhaps, is the Holy Spirit's most important task. And then third, and lastly, we're going to consider some of the most important aspects of our life in the Spirit. So, a review of what we've learned about the Trinity, the Holy Spirit throughout all of Scripture, and lastly, some of the most important aspects of our life in the Spirit. So now the things about the Trinity that we've learned, we can summarize the doctrine of the Trinity with three simple sentences. There is one God. God is three persons. Each person is fully God. Holy Scripture proves all three of these truth claims. So, for example, in Deuteronomy 6, verse 4 It's the famous verse that says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. 
the Lord is one. The Lord is the only God, and the Lord is one essence or substance. He has glory. He has all authority. He has all wisdom and all power and all knowledge and all of everything that makes up God. But let's add a statement about God. The Lord is simple. Now let me explain. There is a doctrine that is called the doctrine of the simplicity of God. And the doctrine of simplicity says that God is not made up of parts. The one God is indivisible. And the fact that God is three persons doesn't contradict the simplicity of God because He is of one essence. The simplicity of God, it emphasizes the radical oneness of God. His divine being, His divine mind, His divine power, and His divine singular will are indivisible. And so then we say that God is three persons, we want to avoid the error of saying that Father, Son, and Spirit are three parts of the one God. That's not correct to say, because God is not made up of parts. He is simple. Each person, we can go on to say, is God in His fullness. And just like our statement of faith tells us, they are all equal in every divine perfection. And so we can walk through the Scriptures and everything that we can say about the Father, we can also say about the Son and we can say about the Spirit in terms of their nature, what they possess. The Father is fully God, the Son is fully God, and the Spirit is fully God. But the thing that distinguishes the Father from the Son and from the Spirit is how they relate to one another. It's what we call their relations of origin. The Father is the source and has eternally begotten the Son. The Son is proceeding from the Father. And the Spirit is breathed out or spirated by the Father and the Son. And this is how the persons of the Trinity have related to one another from eternity past. There was no beginning to that. Forever, the persons of the Trinity have related to one another like that. But God has also acted outside of the relationships or relations, excuse me, that the persons of the Trinity have with one another. For example, God has worked outside of Himself in creation and in redemption. When the one triune God works, all three persons are acting because they are of the same essence or substance. And his actions take on, then, a Trinitarian shape. So creation and redemption are begun in the Father, and they happen through the Son and in the Spirit. Now, we're going to add one more truth 
to our understanding of the Trinity. In their acts of creation and redemption, even though they're all said to be acting with one will and one power, the different persons of the Trinity are being manifested or shown more specially. And so, in creation, the Father is more specially being displayed. In redemption, the Son is being more specially displayed. And in sanctification, the Spirit is being more specially displayed. Last week, I shared with you an analogy um, about a trio of persons singing the same song together on a stage. But one of them steps forward and is the most prominent singer for one of the songs. The other two are still there. They're singing the same song, but they aren't the one most visible. And then when the trio sings a second song, another member of the trio steps forward and the other two are backgrounded. All three are still singing the same song for every song that they sing, but each one of the trio takes the front role for a different song. This is an analogy to describe what is happening in our triune God's external works in, for example, creation and redemption and sanctification. What Another thing that we learned about the Trinity, particularly the second person of the Trinity that is entirely unique, is that, first of all, we've said that the God the Son has the same divine nature as the Father and the Spirit. But when the Son became a man, when Jesus came into the world and was incarnated, He added a human nature to His divine nature. We call this the hypostatic union. The two natures in Christ mean, therefore, that Christ had two wills, whereas you and I have one will. Each of us has a singular will that we make decisions out of. And so as a man, in his humanity, Jesus had to grow in wisdom and knowledge and learn obedience. It says this in Scripture. And He did that perfectly. We saw evidence of His human will, of course, when Jesus speaks about obeying the Father and when He prays, not my will but yours be done, Father, in the Garden of Gethsemane. Now, I have one more aspect that I want to teach you about the Trinity. One more truth. The Scripture speaks about the Father sending the Son and the Father and the Son sending the Spirit. These sendings are called the missions of the Trinity. The missions of the Trinity. And the missions of the Trinity are based in and flow from the relations of origin between the persons of the Trinity. So let's consider, for example, the mission of the Holy Spirit who is our focus today in the sermon. Jesus says that 
God the Father will send the Holy Spirit. In John chapter 14, 26, he says, but the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things. And then in John chapter 15, verse 26, Jesus says that he will send the Holy Spirit or the Helper. Verse 26 says, but when the Helper comes, whom I will send to you from the Father. These missions of God in the Son being sent and then in the Spirit being sent are all so that God can make His dwelling with us. That's the purpose of the missions. God's work in His missions is in order for Him to pour out His all-sufficient glory and the goodness of His Trinitarian life so that we can find our greatest fulfillment in Him. He is the source of life. I wonder if you've thought about the fact that the good news of the gospel is about God giving Himself to us. That's what the gospel's really all about. Becoming a Christian is about receiving a gift, and the greatest gift that God could ever give us is Himself. If you think about the Christian life as merely having your sins forgiven and then trying hard to keep some rules so that you can go to a better place after you die, well, then you're missing the point of the gospel. Listen to John Piper in his book, God is the Gospel. He says this, Christ did not die to forgive sinners who go on treasuring anything above seeing and savoring God. And people who would be happy in heaven if Christ were not there will not be there. The gospel is not a way to get people to heaven. It is a way to get people to God. He goes on to say, if we don't want God above all things, we have not been converted by the gospel. The goal and the mission of God is to give Himself to us. Understanding the doctrine of the Trinity and the missions of the Son and of the Spirit brings that into sharp focus for us. Now, in the past three weeks, we've explored some of the basic but extremely deep biblical truths about the Trinity, and I wonder if you're struggling to grasp it, even now perhaps, this morning, this afternoon. If you're struggling to grasp it or understand it or especially maybe even know how to explain it to someone else, you're not alone. Probably the person next to you is in the same position. But don't give up. Don't give up. Don't decide that you're never going to get it, so why even try? God has revealed Himself to be triune in His Word so that we will be able to grasp it, to understand enough of it, and even to know how to explain it to each other and to people who don't know Him, because to know God is life. It's eternal life. Now, we're ready to focus our attention on the third person of the Trinity, the Holy Spirit. The Spirit 
of God is on the first page of your Bible in Genesis, and He's on the last page in Revelation. The Spirit fills the Scriptures then between that page, the first page, and the last page with His presence. If we begin at the beginning in Genesis, the Spirit is the one who gives God's works of creation life. Psalm 33, 6 says, By the word of the Lord the heavens were made, and by the breath or the spirit of His mouth all their host. Adam was enlivened by the Spirit of God. In Genesis 2, verse 7, it says, And then the Lord God formed the man of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. This is the Spirit. And the man became a living creature. In the rest of the Old Testament, it was the Spirit of God who led the Israelites out of slavery in Egypt. Isaiah 63, 11 and 12 says, Where is he who put in the midst of them his Holy Spirit, who caused his glorious arm to go at the right hand of Moses? The Holy Spirit was there in Exodus. The Spirit then was the one who empowered judges and anointed kings and spoke through prophets in the Old Testament. He dwelled with them. He dwelled in the midst of Israel, and He acted in the hearts of some Israelites. But He didn't dwell with permanence in them. But that all changed then in the New Testament after the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. Prior to that, in the New Testament, the Holy Spirit announced Jesus' birth. The Holy Spirit caused Jesus to be conceived in the virgin's womb. He anointed Jesus at His baptism, and He empowered His public ministry. Then it was through the eternal Spirit that Jesus offered Himself as a redeeming sacrifice on the cross. And it was the Holy Spirit who the Father used to raise Jesus from the dead. It says in Romans 8, chapter uh, chapter 8, verse 11, If the Spirit of Him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, He who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through His Spirit who dwells in you. At Christ Jesus' enthronement in heaven then, at His ascension, He and the Father then poured out the Holy Spirit on the believers, empowering them, emboldening them to be witnesses to Christ in the world. The Spirit then is operating in our regeneration when our hearts are made new, in our justification, in our adoption as sons along with Christ, and in our sanctification. And it's the indwelling Spirit who guarantees that we will one day be glorified. The Holy Spirit is there throughout the pages of Scripture. Now, as thoroughly present as we find the Spirit in the Scriptures, there is a curious thing when we think about the Spirit in comparison to the Father and the Son. And it's that actually there is less attention paid to the Spirit in the Scriptures 
than to the Father and the Son. I wonder if you've ever noticed that. Turn with me to the passage that Fanny read for us earlier. It's actually in your bulletin if you want to just turn there, but in your Bibles, turn to John 16. John 16, and we're going to look at verses 12 through 15. And we're going to consider why it is true that it seems that the Holy Spirit has less attention on Him. John 16, verses 12 through 15. Follow along with me. Jesus says, I still have many things to say to you, but you cannot bear them now. When the Spirit of truth comes, He will guide you into all the truth. For He will not speak on His own authority, but whatever He hears, He will speak. And He will declare to you the things that are to come. He will glorify Me. For He will take what is Mine and declare it to you. All that the Father has is mine, therefore I said that He will take what is mine and declare it to you. So Jesus is telling us here that the Spirit's primary task is this, He will glorify me. He'll glorify Jesus. One of the, most, one of the Spirit's most important appropriated roles in redemption is to make much of Jesus. One of the things that Dubai is known for is its architecture, and that's particularly evident at night. Why? Because all of the architecture and the structures that they build here in Dubai, they light so well. They make sure to put lights on them. Joanne and I frequently walk along the canal. It's near our house, and we walk there at night, and I'm always impressed by the creative bridges that they've constructed over the canal. I hope you've seen some of those. There's uh, that one bridge that looks like a long square tube that's been twisted. It's all lit up. And there's the tolerance bridge that's a beautiful arch from one side of the canal to the other. And some nights it's purple, and some nights it's green, some nights it's yellow. It changes colors on different days. The reason that these bridges and really all the structures in Dubai are so beautiful at night is that they are so well lit. You don't see the lights, but because of the lights, you admire the architecture all the more. And J.I. Packer has his own version of this kind of illustration in his book, Keeping in Step with the Spirit. He says that the floodlights on a beautiful building or a structure perfectly illustrate the Spirit's new covenant role. Packer writes, the Spirit is the hidden floodlight shining on the Savior. He says, think of it this way. It's as if the Spirit stands behind us, throwing light over our shoulder onto Jesus who stands facing us. He goes on to say, the Spirit's message is never, look at me, listen to me, come to me, get to know me. No, His message is always, look at Him and see His glory. Listen to Him and hear His word. 
Go to Him and have life. Get to know Him and taste the gift of joy and peace. That's the role of the Spirit. The Spirit is always making much of Jesus. Now, if you're not a Christian, you're welcome here at every single one of our services and so many of our other gatherings. And if you've come here several times to join us and heard us preaching from the Bible, I wonder if you feel like maybe you're being drawn to Christ. Do you find yourself admiring Him more and more? Do His promises linger in your mind, perhaps? Does His acts of compassion and kindness and love make you want to be near Him somehow? Does His authority and His strength seem like a safe refuge in a dangerous world? Listen to the Spirit. The Spirit is the one causing Jesus to be attractive to you. He's always pointing to Jesus. He's always making much of Jesus. Your sin, though, in fact, is what prevents you from knowing God. And it's what has brought condemnation and judgment down on you. But Jesus went to the cross as our substitute to pay our sin debt. And He was raised to new life so that you could have new life in Him. And if all of that is clear to you, if that message about Jesus makes sense, it's because the Spirit is making it clear. The Spirit is giving you understanding. The Spirit is opening your spiritual eyes to who Jesus is. He's shining the floodlight on Jesus. And I want to encourage you, trust in Jesus. Put your faith in Jesus. Repent of your sin and follow that Jesus that the Spirit is pointing to. You can do it today. Now, with the remaining time, I want us to consider three different unique aspects of the Spirit's work in us. First of all, the baptism and filling of the Holy Spirit. Second, how we grieve the Holy Spirit. And third, our unity in the Spirit. First, baptism and the filling of the Holy Spirit. Now, Jesus promised His disciples after His resurrection in Acts chapter 1, and He said this to them, John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. And of course, His disciples obeyed Him. They went back to Jerusalem. They gathered in the upper room. They added a twelfth apostle to their midst, and they prayed, waiting for the helper that Jesus said that He and the Father would send to them. And then in Acts chapter 2, it describes the Holy Spirit being poured out on them. The baptism of the Holy Spirit is what happens then when anyone repents and puts their trust in Jesus. The baptism of the Holy Spirit is something that happens once in a person's life at our conversion. For example, it says in Ephesians chapter 1, verses 13 and 14, In Him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in Him, were sealed with the promised 
Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of His glory. Did you hear that? That Paul refers to the Spirit as a guarantee and a seal. You can think of a seal like what they used to do with envelopes and letters that were being sent from one person to another. They would write the letter and put it in the envelope, and then in order to seal the envelope, of course, they would drip hot wax on the back flap of the envelope. And then before the wax had dried, the person would take their seal, maybe a ring with, a, with an impression, would push it down into the wax, causing it to seal that envelope closed. And then anyone who received that envelope with the seal intact would know that it had not been tampered with. It had been preserved by that seal. The Holy Spirit is a preserver in us who believe. He's a guarantee. The Spirit doesn't leave us and then come back to us on and off, out and in. The Spirit's indwelling is permanent in a believer. And Paul makes that clear in Romans chapter 8, verse 9. He says, you, however, are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit. If, in fact, the Spirit of God dwells in you, anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to Him. Everyone who is a Christian has the Spirit of God in them. But the Bible also describes believers being filled with the Spirit long after they've been baptized in the Spirit. Of course, it happens, for example, in chapter 4 of Acts, after the apostles had been dragged before the Sanhedrin and threatened, they gathered again in a, together in a room, and they prayed a vigorous, heartfelt prayer. It says the room was shaken and they were filled with the Spirit. Paul says in Ephesians chapter 5, Verse 18, he says, Do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit. Now, why would Paul say that to believers? He was writing the letter to the Ephesian church. He himself had written the letter to the Romans and said, If you don't have the Spirit, you're not Christ's. You don't belong to Him. When believers become filled with the Spirit, time and time again, it's not that they were empty of the Spirit, but that they have, at that point in time, submitted themselves to the Spirit's leading and lordship anew. They've given themselves to the Lord's work in them afresh. The Spirit's been in them all the time, but they're given over to Him. When they're filled with the Spirit, then there's an increase in experiencing God's triune presence through the Spirit. And there's a greater conformity to His will, perhaps greater obedience, a greater sense of peace and the grace of Christ in our lives. That's what it means to be filled with the Spirit. When we go through Scripture and we see this filling of the Spirit in believers, we see that heartfelt prayer like in Acts chapter 4, and repentance from sin often precedes the church being filled with the Spirit. You know, it's so important, brothers and sisters, that we 
cultivate an active prayer life, a life of prayer where we're not just taking prayer and practicing it at certain times in our lives, perhaps just on our own, but that we're praying with one another from time to time, day in and day out, when we gather and when we're apart. Cultivating an active prayer life is a precursor to being filled afresh with the Spirit. It's going to God and inviting His Lordship in our lives. I remember uh, traveling in Australia and going to uh, student conferences uh, at uh, some of the conferences that the Australian Fellowship of Evangelical Students put on. And oftentimes what struck me in particular about the AFES staff workers there was that when we would sit down and have a conversation over a meal, we would never part company without some kind of prayer. And it was always initiated by these brothers in AFES. Time and time again, they would end the conversation by saying, let's have a word of prayer together, brother. And we would pray briefly. That person would pray for me and pray for what was happening at the conference. It was natural. It was ordinary. It was real and genuine. And it was happening at these times when you and I might not think that prayer belonged there, but it certainly did. I've walked away from those experiences realizing that cultivating a life where we pray instinctively for one another at all times and in different places paves the way for fresh fillings of the Spirit in our lives. In addition to that, Repenting of sin regularly, being vigilant to repent of sin in our lives paves the way for us to be filled afresh with the Spirit. I wonder if that's something that you do regularly in your life, repent of sin. And when I say repent of sin, I'm not just talking about praying the Lord's Prayer and saying, Lord, forgive me for my sin. I'm talking about thinking of particular sins that you've identified maybe from the past week or the past day, (laughs) perhaps from the past hour. Brothers and sisters, repenting of sin paves the way for fresh fillings of the Spirit in us. One of the things that we've begun to do just recently in our elder meetings, the elders of Covenant Hope Church, is to have a a time set aside every other elder meeting to confess our sins to one another. That's right. We're going to take 15 minutes, perhaps. We're going to go around the table. We've already begun to do it. And each person will confess some sin. And we're, we're confident that we can do that because God has given us His Son. We know the grace of Jesus. We also know that we're sinners, And I will tell you that uh, even though we've only done this once or twice now, it's, it's been such a blessing, such an encouragement to identify specific sins in our lives and confess them to one another. Oh, church, I encourage you in your friendships with one another, confess your sins to each other. Don't be afraid. Offer grace to each other. 
It paves the way for fresh fillings of the Spirit in our lives. Now, because we still do have a sinful nature, it's possible, of course, to grieve the Spirit who dwells in us. In chapter 4 of Ephesians, Paul is urging the Ephesian believers to leave behind the sins that were associated with their former lives as non-Christians. He mentions a whole litany of sins. He mentions lying to one another, stealing from one another, harboring sinful anger and wrath and slander against each other, even just letting corrupting talk come out of their mouths as sins that He wants them to put aside now that they're following Christ. And in the midst of listing those sins that don't belong in the life of a Christian, He tells them one big reason why they should put those sins behind them. He says it in chapter 4, verse 30 of Ephesians, and do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Sin grieves the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is a person, not a force, and He can be grieved. In fact, He is grieved by our sin. Our statement of faith makes reference to the grieving of the Holy Spirit. We say in one of our articles about sanctification that we believe that, the, that genuine believers may fall into sin which grieves the Holy Spirit, impairs their graces and comforts, and by that it means that sin spiritually harms us. It thwarts our ability to receive the grace of God. It makes us uncomfortable. It pains us, actually. It goes on to say in that article, that the sin which grieves the Holy Spirit also brings reproach on the church. In other words, it can bring a bad name to the church of Christ if we continue in that sin, and especially if it's public sin. And it also brings what it says in this article are temporal judgments on themselves. In other words, there's discipline from the Lord often because of our sin. Now, that's discipline in order to call us out of sin. When the Holy Spirit is grieved by our sin, brothers and sisters, it, it has a corporate effect. Your sin doesn't just affect you. Not even the sin that you think is private. Remember, church, one reason to put away all kinds of sin is to keep from grieving the Holy Spirit and from hurting the church of Christ. Your sin isn't just a breaking of rules. It's a break in your relationship with God, the Holy Spirit, who dwells in you. It grieves Him. Now, in God's kindness and grace, when we grieve the Holy Spirit, He's also the one who mercifully convicts us and who enables us by faith to repent and to be forgiven, and then to enjoy a renewed fellowship with God, with Himself. Now lastly, God the Holy Spirit enables us to have unity as believers. That's the third aspect of our life in the Spirit that I want to talk about. 
Ephesians 4, verses 1 through 3. Turn with me there, if you would. Ephesians 4, 1 through 3. Paul is writing again to the Ephesian church, and he says, I therefore, a prisoner of the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. And then farther down, look farther down in verse 13, he mentions the theme of unity again. He says, until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God to mature manhood to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. The Spirit not only binds us together with Christ, but binds us together as one body. The Spirit creates Christian unity. Oftentimes, Christian unity is wrongly thought of as Christians being all together in one physical space. In other words, people tend to think sometimes that if we just gather in one big space together, we're unified. But that's not what the Scriptures teach. These verses stress how the Spirit unifies us first by together we hold common convictions about Christ. We're unified when we agree that Jesus is Lord and Savior through His death and resurrection from the grave. And we're built up in unity when we hold firmly to the gospel. And we maintain that unity in the Spirit when we live out a common care for one another. He said in those first few verses, living with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love. So in other words, the Spirit creates unity by enabling gospel convictions and gospel relationships. Gospel convictions and gospel relationships. Jesus said that when we love one another according to the gospel, trusting in Jesus, that we demonstrate to the world that we are His disciples. That is a crucial part of our witness in the world. One of our church members told me this week about a non-Christian co-worker that they've been sharing the gospel with over the last year. This co-worker not a Christian, skeptical about Christianity, and this co-worker has been making fun of it and sharing all kinds of popular attitudes about Christians that are really distortions of the truth. And slowly, conversation by conversation, gently, lovingly, this church member has been correcting those misconceptions talking to their co-worker about Jesus and about the gospel and what it means to be a Christian. Slowly, little by little, as the conversations continued, this Christian continued to have their questions answered. And they spoke oftentimes about their, their joy in living in community with the church. This co-worker's attitude has changed and their skepticism scoffed has softened. And this week, the co-worker commented, you know, you're the best kind of Christian that there is. 
they said to the church member. Why do you say that? The church member asked. And this coworker said, because you live what you say you believe. Oh, brothers and sisters, our unity in the Spirit, our love for one another, is one big declaration that Jesus is, in fact, Lord and Savior. That He's alive and that we really are His disciples. And that's why true Christian unity is the one reason why it's so important to maintain and see it grow among us. Are you working to maintain the unity of the Spirit in Covenant Hope Church, brothers and sisters? Are you serving others in humility and love? Are you growing in your convictions and understanding of the gospel of this triune God that the Scriptures reveal to us? God's goal in the world is to bring glory to Himself, the Father and the Son and the Spirit, the one triune God. He's the one who created everything that is, and He's working to redeem a people from every nation, tribe, and language to live with Him forever in eternal joy and happiness to the praise of His glorious grace. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we praise You that in the gospel, You are giving us Yourself. We praise You that You've revealed Yourself in Your Word as being triune, three in one. Lord, I pray that You'd give us increased understanding, increased joy in Your triune life. And we pray, Lord, that because of Your work in us, through the Spirit especially, Lord, that we would say to the world, Jesus is Lord, to the praise and glory of the Father. We pray all this in Christ's name. Amen.